0: Much of what we learn about science, nature, and the environment happens outside of school and beyond the walls of museums, zoos, and nature centers. I have worked as an independent environmental professional for many years and know there are others like me who interact with the public in communities worldwide. On the Talatera podcast, we discover who these professionals are, what they do, and how they create change. Why do I focus on independent professionals? I focus on them because they move freely through communities. They move freely between schools, organizations, businesses, programs, and other informal learning environments. They are positioned to meet the public where they are, and this is powerful. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Tanya Marion. My guest today is Jeffrey Ryan. Jeffrey is the author of Appalachian Odyssey and Blazing Ahead. In his latest book, This Land Was Saved for You and Me, Jeffrey introduces readers to seven people who were key to forming and preserving America's public lands. Jeffrey tells the story of how these individuals influenced each other and worked with each other and who they met during their careers. He writes specifically about the contributions made by Frederick Law Olmsted, Gifford Pinchot, Benton Mackay, Theodore Roosevelt, Bob Marshall, Aldo Leopold, and Howard Zahniser. I just love the story that Jeffrey tells and the history, too. It's the kind of story that my brain likes because it helps fill in the timeline I have floating around in my head. I enjoyed discovering who knew whom and who crossed paths with each other before and after they became well-known. We'll begin today's episode by learning about Jeffrey's first book, Appalachian Odyssey. This book took 28 years to write, and it inspired his other books and his documentary series about America's conservation heritage. Let's join the conversation. I'd like to provide a bit of context for listeners. And um, your first book was published in 2016 and it was about your experiences on the Appalachian trail. I read that it took you several years to write. What was the motivation behind your first book?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I had done um, a lot of long distance hiking. The first trip I took was Mexico to Canada in one shot mm. and I, um, I got back from that in 1983 um, and started dabbling around with uh, the Appalachian Trail with a friend of mine. And we didn't realize we were doing the whole thing until a few years into it, doing little pieces of it. And then one night in the tent, he turned to me and said, uh, we might as well just keep doing the whole Appalachian Trail. And I burst out laughing and told him, um, you have to be crazy. This will take us 30 years. And uh, (laughs) he said, so what? And I had a revelation when he said that. I said, my gosh, he's right. So what? And um, we just kept plugging away. And 28 years later, um, we finished the trail in Georgia, 2,189 miles. And um, by that point, toward the end of it, I had decided to write a book about it. There were so many great stories around that three decade adventure that it really needed to be told. So that's what really started the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it became Appalachian Odyssey. uh, And uh, that sort of got me off and running in in the authorship part of the story.
0: Wow. Your current book, is called the. This Land Was Saved for You and Me. And because of your extensive hiking experiences, you, without, without a doubt, write from a perspective that few others have. I love the history, as I said earlier. I, I love the research. Research is just so exciting to me. When did you start to write this book, this particular book?
1: Oh, well, this book was an outshoot. I, so the second book I wrote was called Blazing Ahead, which is about the history of how the Appalachian Trail got built. And the reason I wrote that was um, having done the whole trail, I realized that uh, these places that we love all, always have somebody or some organization behind making them possible. And so I developed a real appreciation for the two principal characters that developed and and built the trail. And that sort of became a theme with me um, as I sort of moved around and looked for other subjects to write about. Benton Mackay was the guy who came up with the idea for the Appalachian Trail, or if you live in the South, the Appalachian Trail. And so after the trail was built, he had a falling out with his partner that had built the trail, Myron Avery. And part of the falling out, a great, a great deal of the falling out, in fact, had to do with the advent of automobiles and their incursion on, um, wilderness and conservation areas. And so the direct fallout of that was that Mackay and, uh, several others, uh, a handful of others started the Wilderness Society. So I took a deep dive into the, those founders of the Wilderness Society and found some common threads in the conservation realm and started out to do a finding your roots version of conservation history and found out that it was so complex (laughs) that there were so many intertwined roots that it became uh, more an exercise of of what I call Spock playing three-dimensional chess on Star Trek. It was uh, way beyond what I could Uh, Easily do, but I did find enough threads to find some compelling intertwinings and handoffs through that 100 years of conservation history. And that's where this land was saved for you and me came from was those handoffs and insights that I had into that 100 year span, which I found fascinating and hope the reader does too.
0: I can tell you it is very interesting, and there's so much information. I was wondering just how complicated it was to piece this story together, because you, you cover a whole bunch. You touch upon so many different topics. You, you touch upon landscape architecture. You touch upon the field of forestry and trail construction, the establishment of the Forest Service, and the tensions between conservation and business, you know, back, back then, which really looks the same (laughs) as it does now, Mm -hmm. the formation of the national parks, this, and then this pendulum swing between uh, parks and, you know, inviting visitors and then wanting to keep spaces unpopulated. And then the, as you said, the creation of wilderness, the wilderness society and wilderness spaces. It is such a, so many layers and, To this story, it's just an amazing job that that you were able to piece all this together, and uh, yeah, it's really amazing. The what is really striking to me is that a lot of the conversations that we have today, like I mentioned, about business and conservation, about attendance at parks, um, cars in the national parks, visitors, and all the types of conversations we have today were happening back then, and it was really interesting to see where how those conversations started, to see how the Forestry Service started, and the things that they were thinking about back then. What struck you about the politics of the time, the conservation movement at the time, and um, the you know the business world, the economics during that that period? You probably had lots to choose from, (laughs) lots of different ways you could take this. How did you decide on which angles to take?
1: Actually, interestingly enough, the characters took me there. Um, I I had been aware of Olmstead, starting with him, as the developer, the creator, the brains behind Central Park, but I had no idea that he was so involved in the ethos behind Yosemite and how you had this really interesting uh, juxtaposition of uh, a space that was built in an urban environment to offer people access to nature. And on the other hand, you had this place that had largely been not accessed by anybody, very few people, Native Americans and a few early arrivals out there in California, but, um, you know, largely not so, but there was the insight that that area should be saved. And when Olmsted wrote about the need for that area, he was very aware of the fact that we needed nature, that in the case of Central Park, he was bringing it to the people. In the case of Yosemite, the people would eventually get there but um, it needed to be managed and protected in 1864 when Abraham Lincoln gave the land to California uh, initially as a state park. So you, you sort of had that, this, this idea, and, and he wrote very eloquently about the fact that we need nature for our well-being no matter what our environment is that we're in from day to day. And then the second chapter of it is really the forests and what were happening to the forests after predominantly as Olmsted was, was, was getting elderly and the use of, uh, trees, forest land was rampant. And so you had this sort of wave of people cutting trees starting in the Northeast and heading mostly West and it was a feeling that everything was inexhaustible. Um, the birds were inexhaustible. The bison were inexhaustible. The trees were inexhaustible. And so this is where those voices for, hey, maybe, uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this so quickly and look at some of the consequences of what we're doing. So there were a few voices that were profound but not necessarily building uh, to anything yet. Um, Strong enough to influence some people to get into forestry, but not yet strong enough to enact forest management. And so that needed to build. So politically and economically, there were a lot of pushes and pulls over about a 40 or 50 year period that ultimately culminated in the creation of, of national forests and management of them, um, which was finally seen as a needed thing, and then the third chapter was really the the Forest Service employees that were largely hired by the first forester Gifford Pinchot, who realized that we had parks, we had forests that were being managed. Now the third piece was, we need places that are as Howard Zanezer said, untrammeled by man um, and able to be enjoyed.
0: Yeah. Every individual who you spotlight in this book, is, it's very focused, very determined and and really does everything with intention. And I think the one who stands out most that way to me is Gifford Pinchot. He was very intentional about everything that he did. And he kind of leaves the impression that he he was very, um, I don't know, just very direct and very, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe not easy to communicate with at all times, but definitely right. knew what he wanted and was so key in pushing forward.
1: Pinchot was the right person at the right time. And I think what's really interesting is in this book, to me is that those major characters were really important and revered and um, to a, a greater extent well known. But it's sort of like a healthy forest itself that the people who came early sort of laid the groundwork for the big trees to grow there. That's why I, I'm really fascinated by people who were before their time like Franklin Benjamin Huff from upstate New York, who quit his medical practice to uh, travel the United States and take a 600-page inventory of the trees that were growing throughout the United States. Just phenomenal for somebody to do that. And talk about someone living their life with intention. He just did what he felt needed to be done without a lot of fanfare, and, and got noticed as a result of it, but did not set out to become like Gifford Pinchot set out to become the head of the forest service. He just set out to make it known that we needed to manage the forest and save the trees. Um, healthy stands. Um, fascinating character.
0: Yes. And that's what also what I love about your story is that these are people in the background. You know, these would otherwise be invisible. And, and as you mentioned earlier, that's something that we, we share. We're drawn to the, those invisible stories uh, and, and wanting to share them with other people and, and spotlight their good work and give them the you know, attention that they're, they're due for sure and the credit that they're due. It's just really amazing. The stories that you tell. Another thing that comes across, or that I thought of when I was reading the, your book, was that for every one of these seven people who you spotlight, how many more did you have to leave out? You know, that were oh, that, that where there was actually <laughs> a record of them, their presence, what they did?
1: Many, I, I probably at least 15 to 20 more. Um, and they they were like meteors that shot across the sky. They were not embers that glowed. They were people who showed up and made very persuasive arguments at certain points or, um, uh, you know, profound statements about the need for conservation, forestry, parks, uh, whatever, and then sort of faded back, I wouldn't say into the background necessarily, but when they Made their comments, they were, they were, uh, well noted and well covered. Um, it was a period in which there were an enormous number of newspapers and they were the primary vehicle for getting the word out. Those and some of the horticultural and forestry magazines, the nascent ones. And, um, people, people were eagerly awaiting to read about people's speeches and, um, and, and whatnot. So there were people like Huff, like a guy named Schurz, who had been uh, in the federal government and gave a number of speeches about forestry after he was ousted by um, a, a, another administration coming in. What I found interesting was how, uh, particularly in New York, how merchants um, became involved in saving forest land because of the effect that clear-cut forests had on watersheds and the unpredictability of things like the Erie Canal being reliable. What was happening because all the trees were being cut in the Adirondacks was that the canal was either overflowing or underflowing and so the merchants were afraid that the railroads would be their only choice and thought that's not good <laughs> our prices for shipping goods to market will go through the roof so they the 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 number of people from the urban environment that signed on with uh managing the forests was an interesting learning for me i never realized um and it makes sense that there is an economic benefit to managing resources that we often don't think about, particularly in that era.
0: How many uh, other instances do you recall that maybe didn't get, make it into the book where that, where those realizations um, occurred between business and, and conservation groups?
1: Um, Not many. Um, In that particular case, I was able to find some examples of flooding in um, the Pittsburgh area that had caused great damage and uh, economic damage, and also a textile mill in New Hampshire that had been flooded out and 3,000 people lost jobs, which was an enormous number back then. But also, interestingly, the tourism part of it as well, in the White Mountains, there was concern, particularly from the religious, uh, one of the pastors in a very influential parish in New Hampshire made the, the plea in the newspaper that people didn't want to um, come from the city and go out and climb mountains to look down on Queercut cut land, which was quite an insight. So it was it was affecting production, it was affecting transportation, and it was affecting tourism. And I think that all of those points, which which we're all still concerned about today, came into play in terms of casting a big net for people to understand and be enthusiastic about uh, protecting and managing our resources. Management is a big part of the story. And it's not, I think, uh, it's also important to identify the fact that what people like Pinchot were angling for, and Roosevelt was not um, was not to trample on um, the rights to harvest trees. They needed trees for our economy. It was about managing the forest, and that was um, that was something that took a while to take root with the forestry, with the with the lumber barons in particular, but. They came to realize that it was good business sense to manage the resource to make sure it was still there.
0: Yeah, you spent quite a bit of time talking about tourism, and I was thinking that could be just a book by itself.
1: It could. <laughs> it <Yeah>. could. <laughs> it's important to so many economies. It's not... Um, uh, you know, I think I think forestry, when we think of national forests, we immediately go to logging or mining um, in our minds. But they're really important recreation areas too. Um the management of those areas for activities like boating and fishing and hiking and mountain biking. And, you know, on and on it goes is really an important uh asset for us to enjoy all of us. And, um, that that's, that's a big driver too.
0: Yeah. When I was reading about the issues with the, the conversations about the skyline roads, and I was thinking about the one time many years ago, I, uh, I had got to drive through the Blue Ridge Parkway during in fall and that was so special. And then it made me think about, gosh, I wonder what the conversation was back then. And it was like hills of fruity pebbles. The colors were amazing. And, but I just, I just loved the, so appreciate the opportunity to be able to see that. It was a thrill. I've always wanted to see fall colors because we don't have that to that here in California to that extent. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a treat, such a treat. And a new appreciation that the road is there, that, you know, we got to be able to do that.
1: Absolutely. It's a beautiful ride. Mm -hmm. And another big economic driver, right? No pun intended. Um, You know, there's uh, lodging and gas stations and eateries and all that along the way. But it's also balanced with um, the, the fact that we also need freeways and we also need back roads. And we also need, um, hiking trails and, and all, um, the, the real fear with that part of the conversation was at the time, um, there were 12 such skyline drives being proposed and if all of them had been, had been built, not only would the, um, scenery be vastly different, uh, particularly on the East coast, but. You wonder how much they'd be used. Um, probably large stretches of them would be abandoned because Blue Ridge Parkway is, you know, forty miles an hour for however many miles it is, and people have the choice of taking that or the freeway.
0: Every chapter, you put a different spin on something <laughs> that was, you know, was familiar. You know, it, it rang, I just bells were going off <laughs> all the time, which is good. And you are you. really, like I said, you are a fantastic s- storyteller. And I, I personally have a very strong interest in cultural interpretation, heritage interpretation. And I was wondering, have you approached the National Association for Interpretation about your book? Have you ever spoken with that group?
1: I have not, but that's a great idea. Um, absolutely.
0: They, they would eat it up. I can tell you they would eat it up.
1: It's really, really interesting that um, today we're, we're talking about how so many people in this story were not um, demanding the spotlight. And I I have um, been recently reading some Eckhart Tolle pieces where he says, if you want to attain a dream, the more you focus on the dream, the less apt you are to get to it. Um, it more, It's more about doing the daily work that needs to get done toward attaining the dream. So um, I think the example he used is if you wanna be a millionaire and you focus every day on telling yourself the story of I wanna be a millionaire, instead of actually doing the work that it takes to become one ethically, then, um, when, when, when and if you do get there, you will not have the satisfaction. And I, I think about that in a lot of different ways. It really hit me because a, a similar story, um, is told in taking 28 years to hike the Appalachian Trail. But, um, but also I think when it, when you look at people like Franklin Benjamin Huff or Schurz or, Some of the other people in the story, Benton Mackay, he wasn't about this. None of them were about the spotlight. Um, Even Aldo Leopold, who ended up being one of the most revered conservationists in our history, had no idea that the book he wrote was, was going to be posthumously this epic, second only to Thoreau book. He just did the work and a lot of it. It really resonated with me. I think that that part of the story, we love the rags to riches story and told in a little soundbite, but it often is not those people that um, deserve the applause, uh, as much applause. The people that helped get them there or the people who were doing it and quote unquote got discovered later are really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Absolutely, and and I'm just thrilled that you wrote this book because it is very good. <laughs> and, I, and so Thank I encourage you. you to reach out to to NAI because I really yeah. think they would love this this book. Um, you've been, you know, con- connected to public lands, or you've experienced public lands over several years. The trails and the history, and what have you seen changed? change over the years in terms of public lands and parks and how they're managed and how the public interacts with them.
1: In recent years, I've seen a lot more people coming back to the parks for 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 a while there there was the 70s backpacking boom and the 80s were fairly active and then things kind of cooled off for a while. And then the pandemic came and everyone, quote unquote, rediscovered the outdoors. And one of the things that I'm concerned about and a lot of outdoor professionals are is I, I think there's a disconnect between people going into the outdoors and um, not leaving anything behind except footprints, taking only pictures. That used to be the mantra. And... Um, most of the wildlife professionals I've spoken to and some of the things I've seen um, indicate a certain lack of respect for those areas that really is disheartening, has been. And fortunately, I've seen the pendulum start swinging back again toward um, people taking better care of it again, which, which makes me feel better about it. All is not lost. But I think anytime a place is, is uh, impacted that much, I think you're going to see some of that. And it's just little things. And my, my philosophy is, even when I'm out for a walk in an urban environment, if I can just pick up that one gum wrapper or, or, uh, or um, fix something or throw away a piece of trash or something, if I'm out on a trail, I bring a plastic bag with me. And it's just, it doesn't seem like much, but it makes a big difference. And um, it helps other people not see it and rationalize adding to the problem. But um, that's, that's been a challenge. I think the management of the resource is actually in better shape than it's been in a long time. I think, for one thing, the funding has gotten a little bit better, uh, has improved for some of the backlogged things that need to be done. And I think there's some really innovative things going on, uh, particularly in forest management that had not been going on until the last couple of years, uh, namely uh, the conservationists and preservationists getting together to manage lands concurrently, working together to see that some portions of lands are protected and others are sustainably forested um, forever. I think that's a really cool thing because up until the last several years, you were either on one side of the fence or the other and never the twain shall meet. But um, now now we're seeing the emphasis on working together and I think that's marvelous. There, there are some really great examples of projects going on right now to get excited about.
0: In your research, have you noticed any records to indicate the impacts of climate change, like uh, the ranges of plants or animals, the, you know, the home ranges, um, the way uh, natural resources were available or, and all that. Have you seen any changes in, in the research that you've done?
1: Oh, yes. Um, actually, this is really fascinating to me. So I, I went to an Olmstead conference. Um, it was his 200th birthday this last year. And I went to a conference in Boston and um, they had several speakers there talking about the Olmstead legacy um, and trying to preserve his his original designs in a number of landscapes. Um, he directly or indirectly through his sons and, and the following um, firm that had his name on it um, impacted over 6,000 projects in the United States, which is mind-boggling. And they ranged from hospitals to college campuses to national monuments to um, city parks and national parks. But what was really fascinating was there's a lot of his uh, plans were so detailed that they said this kind of tree here, these kinds of bushes here, um, you know, he was a landscape architect, so of course he'd be that detailed. But the problem is in many of the environments now, those trees are either dying or um, need to be replaced with another because climate change is affecting those landscapes. And there were a number of people speaking to how they did that. So how do you honor someone's original intent for a piece of land while um, accommodating things like climate change. Um, These discussions are already happening. They're already making the changes. And to many people, they're going to be subtle because maybe they're the same species, but they're a little more heat tolerant or a lot more heat tolerant. Um, So there are those kinds of things which I had never even really thought about till I went to the conference and said, wow, that's really interesting. They're trying to honor the design with what we have, what makes sense. And then um, certainly we're seeing other things like, we're seeing the range of things like sugar maples change and the projections of maple syrup availability moving uh, incrementally up to Northern Vermont and then Quebec only. And then, then what, you know, so there are, there are signs of that. And certainly this last year when I was hiking in Northern Maine, it was in April and we saw a week of five days in a row of 80 and 90 degree temperatures. You never saw that in April in Northern Maine. And um, spring came earlier than ever. And that's, that's been happening too. So it's there, it's changing. The glaciers in the northwest, same thing. When I, when I climbed those mountains in the '80s, there was a lot more glacier there than there is now. So, we're seeing it.
0: Yes. How often uh, are you able to go out on extensive hikes like you, like you do? I mean, that's what you do. You still do that. You still travel quite a bit.
1: Yes. I, I, as much as I can, um, this year I have a couple of, um, at least one week hikes, um, planned with my, with my buddy Wayne who's still at it with me. Um, I think it's year 35 this year that we've gone for at least one trip every year and we're still doing it. So it's, it's pretty cool. These old guys carrying packs for hundreds of miles. (laughs) So, uh, we're trucking away. And, um, I had, uh, one of my other passions is I have a 1985 Volkswagen camper and I go, um, on my book tours in that. So I try to, I try to integrate two or three day hikes every once in a while, uh, in between my lectures to jump out of the van and go for a walk. So I'm not always driving.
0: So Nice. So so nice. Now, when you when you travel, do you keep a, a journal? Do you collect data as you go? Pamphlets? I mean, all of that. You have boxes or bags filled with information? all of the
1: above. <laughs> I have a my uh, my current writing studio is is filled with books and pamphlets from old trips and guidebooks. I'm a guidebook junkie. I have uh, guidebooks to I think almost every hiking trail in the U S and maps. So when I get bored, I take them out and start dreaming about uh, where do I want to hike next. But um, my, my ultimate goal is I'm moving uh, to a piece of property in Western Maine and building an exact replica of Henry David Thoreau's cabin, uh, which I will use as my office.
0: Wow. And you, you will be doing, the, this This is a DIY project for you, I'd It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is.
1: I'm going to, uh, I won't hand hew the beams. I won't cut down the trees and, and do, go to that extent, but I'm going to build, um, have the beams delivered and then build the rest of it. I, I have a um, main sourced lumber operation that's working with me on the lumber and um, a blacksmith who's working on the hardware. So uh, even even the hardware for the door hinges and handle will be blacksmithed like in in Thoreau's day. I want it to be as authentic as possible.
0: Oh, amazing, amazing! So will you? I assume you will be documenting this for a book oh, or yes. through your <laughs> for your videos, you know? Yes, doing videos.
1: Mm-hmm. All of the Wonderful. above.
0: All of the above. Oh, that's fantastic. So let's let's talk about your your videos. You have I'm going to call it a, a series, a documentary series, uh, where you highlight uh, people, uh, specific individuals. You're, you call the series "Voices of the Wilderness." You have on your website uh, completed episodes, and you also have some that are coming up. How many how many voices do you think you'll capture?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I, I, uh, it, it depends. I, I, I have about 15 um, chosen right now, and I'm actually working on film three close, closing in. Um, that one will be about Ernest Oberholzer, who lived in um, northern Minnesota and was uh, instrumental in saving 75 million acres of wilderness. Another one of those unsung Heroes, very affable, very, um, sought out for his advice, but very insulated. He lived on an island in northern Minnesota and had a tremendous influence from this little enclave. Senators, statespeople, uh, the Ojibwe tribe were among his best friends. He, he was just a a very popular and uh, and sought out man in that part of the world and beyond. He actually became one of the founders of the Wilderness Society. They sought him out, um, and um, I've I've already done Leopold and Howard Zahniser, who was the mover and shaker in getting the Wilderness Act passed. And uh, I'm I'm working on a Rachel Carson one too because she is another one of those people who was so dedicated and almost thrust into the role uh, of uh, being the champion for the birds and for for getting us to stop using DDT. And it's interesting. She initially did not want to take that project on, but realized nobody else was going to do it and became a hero because of it. And um, there are so many like that in, in conservation realm. There are many of us Many, many people working in uh, conservation who are are doing similar things. And um, it's fun. It's fun to connect and and, uh, energize from each other.
0: Yeah. And might there be an episode about Jeffrey Ryan one day?
1: Ah, (laughs) I'm too modest
0: <laughs> well, well. What Some, if,
1: someone else. Someone else will have to do that one. <laughs>
0: yes. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> but yeah. Absolutely, It should be included in that series. I think.
1: I, I'm too focused on telling other people's stories, but I I have to tell you one story that didn't make it into the book. It's it just absolutely blew my socks off, and it, it is. I was working on the book, and I was really focused on hyper-focused on this project, um, this land. And I, I needed a big whiteboard. The one thing missing was a whiteboard big enough to kind of map out how I wanted to tell the story. And so a friend of mine's mine in, uh, owns an advertising agency. And I went over there and said, can I use your whiteboard? And he said, sure, have at it. So I'm sticking stuff up on the wall on his whiteboard. And um, he, he comes in and looks at it and he, he's somewhat wowed by all these little threads I'm trying to connect. And he said, uh, I don't mean to add to your pile of things to do, but you ought to read this book about Rudyard Kipling, who was living in Vermont um, when he was writing the just so stories. So I uh, I said, David, I just, I don't have time to read that. It's so off task. I just can't do it. And he, and he kept trying to Get me to read it. And he finally said, it's a quick read. You'll be done in two days. And I said, all right. It's a, it's a book called If. And, uh, of course I bought it, got it on Kindle. I read it and I'm reading it. And in it, it said, well, well Kipling was waiting and his family was waiting, were waiting to have their house built in Vermont. They were looking for a cottage to rent and one opened up and it had just been rented by a playwright named Steele MacKay and his family. And I just couldn't believe it. It was Benton MacKay's father. So Benton MacKay was living on this country road in Vermont. And two weeks later, Rudyard Kipling's family moved into the same house. And I just thought, this is just one of those things in research where you don't even intend for something to fall into your lap. And lo and behold, there it is.
0: Oh, you see? And that that's what makes it fun.
1: Yeah. Fun.
0: All those surprises, they're such gems. And I'm not even going to share how many gems there are in your book because people need to, <laughs> need to stumble upon them on their own when they read your book. Yeah. It's its really... Hopefully. Yeah. Thank you. really wonderful part of the story. I so appreciate you being here today and talking about your book. Your book, especially... Um, I I think now really provides not only is it exciting to hear how all these different people knew each other, what they worked on and what we have today because of their time and effort. And it, it really, uh, at least for me, provides, provided a moment of reflection to really think about where we came from, what we're, what we have now and where we need to go. And it's, it's humbling because we take things for granted, like the Forest Service. But, you know, that didn't exist. There was a time when it didn't exist. Right. Um, there wasn't anybody to manage in national parks. And you take us back there to those to those key moments.
1: And we also, thank you, we also can stand to benefit from revisiting that the, the fact that they went through many of the same issues that we're, we're um, debating and trying to solve now. And the way they went about it was um, really interesting. One quick example would be Pinchot when um, Teddy Roosevelt sent him out to sit with the uh, loggers who were vilifying him and um, asked him to go talk to them. And he did. And they came to um, a really good place. And if they had stayed in their corners and continued to hurl insults at each other... They would not have gotten to that place. And I, I thought, um, you know, some things never <laughs> change. Um, we, we can learn a lot from that. Um, there's more in common that we have more in common than not. And, um, I think it's really easy to lo- lose track of that and, uh, sort of hop on board with that kind of thinking. And, uh, we need, we need more people willing to sit down and, and, look at the, the problems holistically and see what we can accomplish.
0: What's next for you?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I have a few irons in the fire. I, I'm certainly committed to um, continuing to work on my films. Um, that, that series has been really fun, and I want to make sure that I keep giving that some energy I'm I'm dabbling around with a couple of other book concepts right now, so I'm not going to commit to any out loud. Um, when I'm ready, I, I announce my intention to then make myself have to do it <laughs> to follow through. So that's kind of my style. So when it, when I feel like I have enough fodder there, I will uh, I'll, I'll share that. But for now, I think uh, I, I I continue to love to. Um, obviously speak on the topic and, uh, continue to research ideas for, for the next one. I, the story is the thing, um, figuring out what I want to talk about and then be the best way to tell it. And once I, once I get that fuse lit, there's no turning back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you so much for your work. I'm definitely going to read your other books. (laughs) because uh, this was absolutely wonderful, my first, my introduction you. to your work. And thank you for being here today, and thank you for everything that you teach us through your work.
1: Thank you for having me. It was wonderful.
0: To learn more about Jeffrey, his books, his documentary series, and where he's speaking next, visit the links in the show notes. And if you know anyone who enjoys visiting public lands, please share this episode with them. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time.